Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. And welcome to episode 0000169 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm broadcasting to you from Triple R World Headquarters at the end of the uh, 96 line here in Nam or Melbourne or even East Brunswick or Brunswick East, whichever way you want to put it. All of those places are on the Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to their elders past and present and I remind us all that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Got a good show coming up for you uh, this evening. Uh, but um, look, we're heading into the footy finals. We're heading into the AFL finals and we're, we're heading into the, uh, the launch, the very exciting launch of the WAFL season, which is about to kick off, I think, um, either tomorrow night or Thursday night. So there's much excitement in the air. But something that has been overshadowing all this, in, in my humble opinion, and the opinion of others that I know, um, is the racist trolling of not only Aboriginal players, but also players like uh, Adam Saad from, uh, from Carlton online. And it seems to me that uh, the, these instances of trolling and racism and bigotry that um, seemingly happened on a weekly occurrence now. Um, for instance, it happened to uh, Kasaya Pickett not too long ago as well. Um, seems to be getting less and less media attention, less and less scrutiny from the AFL and the AFL community. It's almost like we're kind of giving up on that. I mean, Richmond came out with a statement after some shocking racial abuse against their two champion players, uh, Shea Bolton and Morris Rioli Jr., after uh, Friday night's game against Essendon, um, Richmond came out and uh, sent out an Instagram post saying they were aware of the trolling and they condemned it and they were launching an investigation to try and track down the perpetrators. And we've also heard from the um, AFL Players Association as well, who came out and uh, condemned it as well. The CEO did, uh, I think, as recently as yesterday. Um, but we haven't heard much from, from the AFL, and I know that there's been a lot going on in the AFL space in terms of you know, that amazing game between Carlton and Collingwood on Sunday, all the trials and tribulations around North Melbourne and Essendon. But if you're going to actually have a Sir Doug Nichols round, if you're going to have a Dreamtime game, if you're going to have a reconciliation action plan, then you need to do stuff in the real world, because... If you don't, you're at risk of having those rounds, having those special games, turning to nothing more than a corporate ticker box exercise. And if you want Aboriginal boys and girls to come up through the ranks and play the game and add all the excitement that our First Nations players do week in, week out, uh, there's often the reason people turn up and, and watch the game just by themselves. You think of the Buddy Franklins, the... The Morris Reals, the Shea Boltons, the Kasai Picketts, uh, the Cracker Brothers in years past, Adam Goods, who was hounded out of the game because of racism, then we need to start doing something in the real world. We need to start holding the people that troll these champions 
off the field and over the fence, we need to hold them to account and make sure that they are kept away from the game and at the very least offered a chance to be educated around some of these matters and understand why racist slurs, bigotry and trolling of young men and women is unacceptable in 2022 and it's never been acceptable, let's face it. But we need to do more because it's becoming a bit of an old hat thing, something that's just mentioned on the radio or in a a, a news release or a a social media post and then it goes away and it's up to the Aboriginal players to deal with this and often it's up to Aboriginal players to lead the way and educate the rest of the competition, the industry that is AFL, to how to address some of these matters and it shouldn't be up to them by now. They should be cared for and surrounded with the love and compassion they need to perform at their very best and just be who they are. And they bring so much to the game and we're at risk of dismantling all the good work that has been done. So things need to change. Blackfellas don't have to lead the charge. It's up to the AFL. And I just wanted to put in my two bobs worth uh, this evening because... Not only did the trolling absolutely infuriate, infuriate me like it does week in, week out, but it just doesn't seem to me like there's been enough coverage of it. So if I've got an hour on these precious airwaves every week, I'm going to stand on my pulpit every now and then <laughs> and have my two bobs worth. Um, now, as for tonight's show, we've got Michael Bell from the Australian War Memorial coming up on the show. Last week, I think it was the 60th anniversary of our Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War and Michael's been doing some research to actually have a look at the uh, men and women, the First Nations men and women that were involved in our action over there and he's done some um, excellent research about that and he's got stories and he's got yarns that he'll share with us so we'll speak to him shortly. Um, before we get on with the show, um, the text line here is 0466981027 if you want to contribute to the show in any way, shape or form. Um, but it was lovely and so nice and so, um, I won't say warm, but it was just beautiful to see Uncle Archie go on his last tour of some of his old haunts yesterday up and down Gertrude Street outside of Parliament House um, and finally make his way back to Warrnambool to the Gunditjmara country where he is from where I believe he was laid to rest today he gave us so much and he's still giving us so much and as with the permission of his boys we will continue to highlight his legacy here at Triple R Triple R Now last week the 18th of August to be exact marked the 60 year anniversary since Australia's first involvement in the Vietnam War, a war that cost over 500 Australian lives, over 50,000 American lives, and millions of what was then North and South Vietnamese women and children and men's lives. And that's not even counting the thousands upon thousands of Cambodian lives that were also lost during that conflict. The war raged on for over 10 years in what was, until that date, America's most dire act of 20th century imperialism, the intervention, the intervention by a superpower on what was ostensibly a civil war of another country. 
the US's blundering approach to geopolitical power and Australia's sycophantic tagging along into the conflict that destabilised the region and indeed the world for decades to come and created an environment for the likes of the Khmer Rouge and their murderous leader Pol Pot to overtake the beautiful country of Cambodia and put their beautiful people through years and years of maniacal genocidal torture. Amidst all of this is the story of First Nations men and women who served their country in what was then the most violent place on earth. For a nation that didn't recognise them as citizens at a time of their birth and for some at the time of their enlistment. In fact, new research from the Australian War Memorial has identified that more than 250 Indigenous men and women served during the Vietnam War, my late father Billy being one of them. Now, our friend of the show, um, Michael Bell, is the Australian War Memorial's Indigenous Liaison Officer. He's a Naganawal Gumarai man. He joined the military's, uh, Memorial's Military History Section in 2015, having previously worked with several Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations. He does fantastic work connecting with ex-servicemen, ex-service women's families and the servicemen and women themselves. Uh, he's done that with me on several occasions and it's an absolute honour to have him back on the show. Michael, welcome back to the mission. Thank you very much, Daniel, for having me and um, I look forward to our discussion tonight. Yes, yes, let's take our time, let's take our time. We've got plenty to talk about. Um, you launched, um, well, you basically put out a, a media release last week that um, highlighted the efforts that you um, in particular had gone to in terms of recognising the Indigenous servicemen and women that actually served during the Vietnam conflict. What, um, what did you find? Well, what we found there is, as, as with our other conflicts that we've already researched and then published um, the list for, we're finding that the response across the nation um, to the call for service or to defend country has been, once again, equal across all the states. Our men and women responded at the same rates as their non-Indigenous brothers and sisters, but also um, our communities also responded to that, and a lot of the men, because of the changing um, geopolitical regime and backgrounds to the time of change, just after and just prior to the 67 referendum, the policies of the government hadn't caught up, but yet our men still went to serve. Yeah, right, right. Um, because, of course, we had the 67 um, referendum and what that, what that well, the, the, the surrounding geopolitical um, nature of what was happening to the First Nations people at the time meant that Aboriginal people couldn't actually be conscripted to actually um, be forced to join the army and serve the country overseas. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Because of the um, national the national service scheme came in in 1951, and it was a, a working re- reasonably well across that period, right up until the time we become involved in Vietnam, and then the government again changed its policies to be able to send national servicemen to active service to battle. And that's when conscription became a major issue for a lot of the people in Australia and they were thought it was unfair to take young, um, uh, unwilling men who were there to provide national service to, uh, to the battlefront. And that's what um, then led to the anti-war protests and the dislike for uh, the questioning of society, but also the change in society too, as Australians are trying to move and we're not, we're not following it 
we never blundered in and we never followed in after the um, the Commonwealth and the and the British uh, mm. the Crown. In this war, we followed the Americans because it was seen because, as you described earlier, the sensitive nature of the political background and what was happening to the machinations of democracy versus that of um, seen to be the threat of the um, communists. Yeah, the uh, the domino effect is, I think. Um was was coined by um, by someone high up in the U.S. government back in the day. It might have been actually McNamara that um, that uh, that did that. The uh, Secretary of Defence during the the Kennedy and uh, Lyndon Johnson years. And so, amidst all of that, amidst all the the major forces that are that are that were taking place at the time, you discovered that after uh, a great great degree of uh, research, that two hundred and fifty Indigenous men and women served during that conflict what what type of people were they and like you said they came from all across across australia can you describe um perhaps one or two stories of some of these service people for us yeah what we've got is what was um the story that was was front line and center of the most of the media was that of um bombardier uncle john burns who was a an aboriginal man from queensland um, I asked him would he come forward to um, tell me his story and help me um, share the story because he was a, a in the regular army and he'd already served in Malaya prior to the service of Vietnam. So he was in the regular army. Um, and his story was that of one of acceptance in the military and goes into the um, into Vietnam as a, as a um, volunteer and he serves two two tours. And his service has taken him to the um, fire station Coral and Balmoral um, uh, battles, and then also he was in the artillery for the Long Tan battle. So it was in, it was significant for me to put more Indigenous faces into the um, the major battles of Long Tan, and, and everybody seems to remember and. and uh, connected the Vietnam War with the Battle of Long Tan, and to put another Aboriginal man into an aspect of that was important for me. But also we've found around the stories of the what, what I'm calling and terming the phrase conscripted volunteers, where... Our Aboriginal men, uh, our uncles, went to the, went to to answer the call of conscription. Were told that they were ineligible because of their Aboriginality, or offered a get out of um, service free card, so to speak, but were choosing to serve anyway. So they'd get their stamps that you were ineligible for conscription because of your Aboriginality. They put it in their pocket, walk out the side door, back in the front door, and then enlist because they were wanted to do their duty. And they had already shown up with a heap of their mates that they were already, you know, had drawn the marble for national conscription. So it's a it's a tale of two different um, entries into the military, but two very different outcomes for for the men that were responding to the service of national uh, national service or conscription, and that of our volunteers that had been in the military for some number of years. It's um, just um, flabbergasting to think now, Michael, that. Uh Conscription was something that was deployed back for the Vietnam War, which was not in, ostensibly in defence of, of the motherland um, per se, and it's something that we didn't do in World War One. Uh, we did in World War Two um, because the, 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 the mainland was under threat um, by imperial forces. But the, the politics around conscription must have been very, very complex and must have been... Um, very controversial, even from the outset. 
Well, it was. Again, it's that, it's that transitional timing that, that catches everybody off. Um, because of the, the National um, Service Scheme was in since 1951, and it was accepted that the Aboriginality was a, uh, an exemption from National Service. So nobody really bothered until the government changed the perspective of what a, what a national serviceman can do and then made them eligible to go to the front. And then all of a sudden, um, the, 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 the um, need for human resources and frontline troops into Vietnam had increased and we were trying to keep up our commitment. It wasn't going well, so more and more men were being called. And then all of a sudden, the... 67, the, the, the reaction to the 67 referendum where the federal government separate departments hadn't, hadn't been treating us equal or hadn't got their policies in place on how they were going to therefore manage Aboriginal people on a federal level and places like the, um, the federal Labor Department were saying that Aboriginality shouldn't be an exemption because they wanted fit young men to go. But the reaction to that in the counter-reaction was that we were deemed, our men were deemed to be Aboriginal and therefore ineligible for national service. They were then being excluded from housing that was dedicated to Aboriginal people because they weren't Aboriginal enough. Mm. And so the, identi the, the government's identity politics starts to take shape and the hangover from the um, colonial days is starting to take shape and the reflection of, oh, it's OK, they're only just Aboriginal, we don't really care about them, is starting to very different aspects of our lives across the broader realm of freedoms that we're starting to now seek and be and equally fight for, such as our legal services were starting to kick off and defending Aboriginal men against the Department of Housing or Centrelink for, um, for their rights to um, access those schemes that we were previously excluded from. And what it shows is uh, uh, an absolute willingness to not acknowledge or forget forget history because we've had Indigenous service um, people involved in every major conflict um, Australia's been involved in dating back to the Boer War and we've had those service people serve their country with uh, a, a distinction and therefore to continue to use Aboriginality as an excuse to not uh, conscript Aboriginal people or even have them in the armed services in the first place is kind of like next level discrimination, isn't it? Yeah, it's institutionalised and in, in document, documented racism. It's it's a pure and simple as that because I can show you the the policies of the day and it's written in the policies that Aboriginal people are exempt from national service. Also, same with the, the 1903 Defence Act where the not substantive European heritage and origin and also the um, assimilation policies of the day where they were trying to breed our Aboriginality out. Those All of those different impacts and the changing view then that the the, the massive change that was going to be starting to be felt from the 67 referendum, federal governments just did not know how to deal with Aboriginal people and they had no history of learning, but our men still served. And may I say also, um, Daniel, is that I've, I've, although it was um, a lot of research to get together the 250 names, I would say about 35% of those names came from descendants of the First World War soldiers and Second World War soldiers. So it's that continuing right. will to defend country 
And by looking at the First World War soldier, I found a Second World War soldier, then I find a Vietnam War soldier and Korean War soldier. Well, that's interesting because that, that resonates with me because my um, great-grandfather, uh, great uh, Percy Pepper, served with the um, Australian infantry in World War One, and he was obviously my dad's grandfather. And um, uh, I guess because we came from a fairly political family, I guess that there wasn't much involvement in World War Two, but the, 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 the heritage and um, the, the sense of honour and uh, the sense of being proud of um, Grandfather Percy was something that was passed down the line. I think it saw a number of uh, Jameses actually involve themselves in, in uh, the Vietnam War. I think it was definitely a, a guiding factor. I, I dare say that's, that's true. And I, I, I would... I would um if we shake the pepper tree, because there's, as you know, quite a number of different arms to the uh, Percy pepper tree now because of the um, his children, the number of children that Percy had, his um, seven children, yep. that um, there, there would be descendants that fought in the Second World War but may have been off... Um, different name yeah you know, they'd be your first and second or third cousins but they're still serving and that's why it makes it a lot easier because once we've got a, a history of family service we tend to find that it's a generational and response to serving i went to serve because my dad served and so forth and so on and i'm going to to serve uh the, the great reg saunders is yes. quoted as saying I, I grew up hearing stories of my men go to battle and he's talking about his grandfather um the ardens from victoria and then his mm um winners um as in rawlings and thorpe hearing those stories told around the mission table when um he's well, when he, he got his opportunity he put his hand up and he goes on to be our first um uh, identified commissioned officer and has a distinguished career in, in Korea. So he fights two wars as well. And the research that I've found now is I've got now two Aboriginal soldiers that fought six conflicts from the Second World War all the way through to Vietnam. Okay, well, I'm, gonna, I'm about to ask you about that, but let me just um, let the folk out there know who we're talking to. It's 29 past seven. You're listening to The Mission. My name is Daniel. I'm speaking with uh, Michael Bell, the Australian War Memorial's Indigenous Liaison Officer. There are uh, Continue to do great research around recognising the service of uh, Aboriginal men and women across the country, um, and of course Torres Strait Islander men and women who have served in various conflicts throughout the years. Okay, so tell us about those two soldiers that served in six conflicts. That uh, sounds remarkable. Um, well, we've got Patrick Owens. He's a, a Victorian man. Um, he's uh, serves. He's as a young man, as an 18-year-old, in the in the Second World War, and gets the, the the last six months of the war. Stays in the regular army. He goes off to um, the British Commonwealth Occupational Forces to help rebuild Japan and police the the um, the rebuilding of Japan. Stays on, becomes goes into the 60th Battalion, which turns into the First Royal Australian Regiment in Korea. Goes to Malaya um, in, in, through the peacekeeping as a 30-year veteran, um, and then he goes on to um, fight in again and continue his service in um, Vietnam. And that's just a couple of the men. The same, same, very same story for James G. Derrick here. He's a Murray man from the top of Queensland. He um, he serves um, two tours in Vietnam, and he's with the team with the, the Australian, the AATV, the Australian Army Training Team, who. Um, a lot of older soldiers that have been over there to train the the, um, the Vietnamese soldiers. And the more research I've got, and the more I look at the inclusion from the Second World War men into the into the who in, in, stay into the army and in, 
Australia then decides after the Second World War that we need a standing army because we hadn't had the legislation to develop a standing army. Right. And so that changes through the end of the Second World War and they say, yes, well, for our own security we need. And then we start changing the review on how we keep men. And a lot of our men that enjoyed the wage and enjoyed the lifestyle stayed in after the Second World War. They go to Beekoff and then on to Korea. And so what I'm finding is that um, three and four conflicts are a pretty good number now for our men in, say, from Malaya into the Indonesian Confrontasi and on into um, Vietnam. Um, some of them are uh, Korea, some are Beekoff, and some are, are also in Second World War. So there's a, a history of ongoing longitudinal service for our men because of the acceptance within the army, the good pay, and then also the lifestyle that they seem to have, to have enjoyed, but that's just being reflected out of again, finding descendants of other families. So I'm, I'm calling on your listeners to have a look, go to my website, the Australian War Memorial website, have a look at the name and see if I've got your family. Yeah, and chances are that um, that Michael will actually will have your family if you mob out there because um, his, his research is tireless. And um, it's not only just desktop research. Like I said, he reaches out into community and speaks to descendants and to service people and actually finds out what the, the GO is. Um, if you want to text in during um, this conversation, you can do that on 0466981027. Um, talking about paying conditions in terms of military service and the Army in particular, Michael, there's one thing uh, the old man used to always say was, um, you know, he, he wouldn't have gone to um, Vietnam for, for quids, you know, he wouldn't have relived that experience for quids. But what he did say was that the, the food, <laughs> the, the food that was uh, dealt up by um, by the cooks, the the, the uh, Australian infantry cooks, um, was top notch and it was better than anything that he had eaten before. So, you know, a way to um, a fella's heart a lot of the time is, is through his belly. Yeah, and that's and that's true, and that's reflected that again. That that's the same for everybody. You can't you can't dish up two different portions for soldiers doing the same job. Yeah. And if you did, the soldiers themselves would be on right. But that's what that's what we're talking about. That equality within the service. And your dad speaks about about that, and and I've seen the other veterans talking about that acceptance as an equal and as a person, because you're there to um, you're there to look after your mate. And you become mates, and you've got those mates in your military life forever. And the vet, that's why I'm so happy to talk about and, and share the stories of the Vietnam veterans and our Vietnam Indigenous Service veterans list, because the veterans themselves can tell, tell, tell me what they were like and what it was like for them. And as you said, for the First World War and the Second World War, I, I, I've got to speak to descendants because they're not around. I miss that opportunity. But as you know, I could, I could reach out and I can talk to any one of the 11... Um, surviving Victorian Aboriginal veterans that um, are on my list and have a yarn to them and say, what did you think? Tell me your story and and get that. And all talk to the family, say, get you any photos of, of, of you and that. So I can still relate to that experience through the through their voices, through the men themselves. And there's no better source for an answer or question about why did you serve? Tell me what it was like. Was there any racism than hearing the man say it himself? Yeah. You know, well, what I what I know is that, um, yep, there was truckloads of, of racism. There was also that, as you spoke of just then, Michael, that uh, level of equality as well, um, despite the racism. Um, but whatever equality there was and whatever sense of unity there was, that kind of all dissipated very quickly upon the return 
of uh, Vietnam veterans and, and particularly uh, Indigenous Vietnam veterans? Yeah, what we're finding that is that coming home to, again, as, with, as in the First and Second World War, a desperately unequal society, a, co- a government that hadn't made policies to deal with and manage the, um, the needs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and then also the anti-war movement that was, that was in place and being called and being spat at and, and being egged and being rioted and being um, suffering the hands that you've gone over and you've provided a service to your country, for your country, you've risked your life and you get no recognition on your return. That makes it really hard for our veterans to talk about and then also take pride into that service. And it wasn't until 1984 that the, the men got a welcome home parade yeah. from their war. And that's, that's some nine years after the fact, whereas we wouldn't have considered doing that for the Anzac veterans or the Second World War veterans. Um, and so it's coming back to that, the, then the transitional nature of how we see in war as a, as a country. And the question, rather than it was more get us out of there, than have we done the job? Why were we there in the first place? Those questions were being asked loud and proud by the government of the day and the government's questioning itself. The people that uh, would normally take patriotic pride and respecting that my family were there were trying to hide the fact that this old, your, your, child, your, your son was there. Yes. And then to come home and have to, you know, get out of your uniform in the airport is a, um, it's a um, no, no respect for the service you provided. I know, I know um, through through my own experience that uh, you know there are a number of Vietnam veterans that did not want to speak about their service or talk about their time over there or even acknowledge the fact that they were there in the first place. And it wasn't until, like you said, the mid '80s, where uh, there seemed to be a bit of a change in which um, people became a little bit more sophisticated around their thinking about this. Because just because uh, soldiers were sent there doesn't mean that they were actually there and responsible for the war itself. And so that changed um, over over time, thankfully. Um, but also with the return of uh, uh, Indigenous service people from Vietnam, there was also um, interge- intergenerational tension as well. I remember Dad saying that him and a few of his um, army mates weren't allowed into uh, an RSL upon their return because it wasn't seen by the diggers there as, as a real war. And then when you overlay racism on that, then you're feeling totally and utterly out in the cold for having served your country. Most definitely. Another impact of that is that, that, that consideration of, you know, you were a Nasho or the, the, the different treatment between a Nasho, a national serviceman or a volunteer or a regular army man. That reflects in the military remembrances at the time rather than in acknowledging that you all went and fought. And I've had the same reflection from the men in Korea too, saying, oh, you didn't fight a proper war. You know, you weren't in the war, you weren't in the big war. And that reflects back and and it's just that... um, the psychological damage that does, does to you when you're looking for a bit of respect or somewhere to share and go and, and um, nurse your, you know, what we now identify as PTSD, or you just want to gather with your mates where you can sit in safety to talk about your experiences, that wasn't offered. And that's a, that's a national shame. It is a national shame, and um, it, it wrecked a lot of lives as a result. Um, Michael... Before I, before I let you go, what else have you got going on at the uh, Australian War Memorial that you'd like to tell us about? 
Well, what I've got coming up is hopefully now I'll be um, get some time to have a bit of a breath, and I'd like to thank uh, the listeners for the potential because in this last week since we've, the story's come out, I've had about 25 additions to the list. Fantastic. So the, the, list is, the list is already growing, but I will be looking to talk the same story about our uh, commitment to the Korean War, and we're looking at upwards of 80 Aboriginal men in, in the service in Korea. But then also, also what we're doing here is um, we'll be looking to um, for younger content because at the moment we're going the Australian War Memorial is going through a development a redevelopment to increase our space to tell the story of the more recent conflicts from the, the Middle East um, in the early 2000s all through to all through and we're looking for um, Indigenous veterans from, from that period to come forward and share their stories as well and that, that'll be good because I don't have to go crawling around dusty archives <laughs> and looking at newspapers from Trove that are 100 years old I'll be able to again once again talk with the veterans themselves get their experience um, talk about their service across all of the different um, the three different branches and maybe maybe um, the federal police or the public services that were there as well now just between you just between you and me Michael how how good is Trove Trove is oh, a godsend it, and I'm an atheist I think I truly think it should be, be called treasure, treasure trove, yes, because it, yes. it's probably taken for that because of the, the wealth of information that I have um, found in that. I can I can be in that rabbit hole for three days. Oh, it, uh, every time I go in, I, I go to look for something very specific, and I end up saying, right, I'm going to be here for 20 minutes, and I look up at the clock, and it's three hours that gone by. I'll give you an example. I, I went down this absolute rabbit hole um, earlier this year, and I discovered that my grandfather had to pay um, a £100 fine to a woman from Brighton because he promised to marry her and didn't. And um, that would have been a lot of money back in the 1890s. And um, he may have been the first James to, uh, to break a heart, but he, he certainly wasn't the, the second or third or fourth because there was plenty more, Michael. But that's a totally different story. Um, but that, well, that's, that's what, that's what that's, the history is already there for us. That's what it does. Um, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Look, I've got one more question, and this is probably well above your pay grade, but there's always, when it comes to the Australian War Memorial, there's always a lot of uh, conjecture and people pushing for the frontier wars to be uh, acknowledged. Is there going to be any movement on that, or is that something that um, will happen have to happen outside the Australian War Memorial? Well, I've got a position that um, I wish that... Uh in hindsight, I wish I could have done this uh, this interview with you a week or two later because uh, in consultation with the Australian War Memorial Reconciliation Action Plan Working Group, um, we have been um, uh, speaking and liaising heavily with the Council of the Australian War Memorial and um, I, uh, there could be potentially some movement in, in that area. Are you giving me um, a scoop, Michael? Uh, possibly, but... Um, <laughs> I'm uh, yeah, but it's it's a, it's a, you're, you're a week or two, or, <laughs> so uh, maybe it's that early. Well, I might get you on in a week or two then if we've got something else to talk about. Yeah, but um, we're um, we've been working very heavily, and again, it's in relation to recognising that the nation is maturing and uh, cultural institutions need to um, tell the in, the indigenous history of Australia right. in a fair, open, and representative um, way. And also what we do with the War Memorial is we tell our story our way. Yep. And so we're looking to um, do more of that, bring that into the um, galleries. Also, that's why I'm calling on veterans of the, the most more recent campaigns 
and also the descendants of the family members that um, I have missed. If I've missed you, it's, I'm doing the best I can, but please let me know. Well, keep up the great work, Michael. Um, we'll have you back on the show um, if there's anything else uh, to talk about, which it sounds like there might but um, might be. But thank you so much for coming on tonight. Um, thank you for the, for the work you do. And, um, look, let's keep yarning. Okay, we will do. Thank you very much, Daniel, for the opportunity. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, as was mentioned in the uh, bunch of cast just then, Radiothon is next week. I have no idea what I'm going to do, so I need to get my thinking cap on quick smart. The, uh, the signage here in the studio is very subtle. Um, if presenters don't know that uh, Radiothon is on, it's an easy mistake to make. It's only the entire surface area of almost every wall within the studio covered with giveaways and packs that uh, can be won if you subscribe to this wonderful station of ours, Triple R, an extraordinary radio station put together by everyday people. And Radiothon kicks off on Friday and it's something to look forward to because I think it's some of the best radio of the year. Um, at the top of that bracket was um, a song called Ritual by the Australian Chamber Orchestra with Richard Tognetti and William Barton. It's actually off a soundtrack called uh, River, which I'm absolutely obsessed with at the moment. So um, uh, do yourself a favour, as uh, a great man once said. And following that, we had the great buddy guy featuring Jason Isbell with a song called Gunsmoke Blues, which is off his uh, fourth coming album uh, which we called the, the Blues Don't Lie. I'm very, very much looking forward to seeing the great man in concert at the Palais in April as part of uh, Blues Fest touring. Um, I expect to see half of the Triple R audience there as well. So looking forward to that. Going to play um, a couple of more tracks and then the delightful people from Superfluity will take over assuming that they turn up, but they're always like, they're too cool. They just turn up with like 90 seconds to go and they get crack and um, uh, it's just brilliant radio between 8 and 10. We have so many great sponsors that support this uh, great station of ours and Radiothon starting on Friday will be the period of time in which we ask for your support and we know that you'll give it and bring it. So very much looking forward to that. Um, I'll be back next week for the Radiothon um, episode of The Mission. But until then, I want you to do three things. I want you to stay safe, I want you to stay strong, and I want you to stay listening to the hours. Um, until next week, ta-da! Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>